stay on the pulpit mic here, Adam. Before we start this evening, I, I should just mention that our deacons are walking out now, and you may wonder why they're walking out. It's not a, a, a mass protest on, on their part, and, and they're not planning to do anything that way. They will be doing that really for the, the remainder of the year, probably. Um, one of the things we've been talking about is how can we help encourage leaders and, and, and people at level of spiritual maturity that maybe you're not gifted to, to teach but need spiritual encouragement to continue growing in their life. Uh, I think we, I've told you before that we spent some time thinking about, you know, the normal Christian life is you start out as a new believer, you're a baby Christian, then you're a young Christian, you're a growing Christian, you're a mature Christian, eventually you become what you might call a pillar of the, the, the saints. That's, that's the, the life process that all of us should be looking to achieve. And we have a lot of things in the church we do for the young believers over here. We have a lot less that we do for the mature believers to help continue that spiritual growth. Our spiritual growth is to be a lifelong process. So it's one of the, the areas our church is looking to increase. So we're, we're experimenting on a way to do that with kind of a small group idea with the, the deacons here over the next few months. So you'll see them every Sunday evening protest by leaving. They're, they're not really in protest. They're, 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 they're trying something out that if it works well, we may expand through more of the church body. If it doesn't, we'll regroup and try again. So there, there, there are, are guinea pigs on spiritual growth, if you want to say that. We know that we ought to grow. How can, as a church, we help at every stage of spiritual growth continue that process? So if you want to know more about it, talk to me afterwards. I'd be glad to share, but that's probably enough for this, this evening because we do have a, a chapter to look at in, in our scripture this evening. We're, we're coming back to Genesis once again as we come back here. We're nearing the end now of the section that traces the development of God's covenantal promises through the life of Isaac. Because we've been talking about Jacob over and over, you may forget that this is actually the section that traces the, the, the promises passing through Isaac's generation to the next. Most of the details have followed that, that progress of, in Jacob's life, and we've followed Jacob as he fled from his brother Esau, all the way to the reconciliation, a process of 20 years between the time he stole the promises that, from his father Isaac that uh, were, were, or not stole the promises, stole the blessing from, from his father, Father Isaac, that, that would have gone to Esau and, and fled for his life. Now, 20 years later, he's reconciled. He came back to the land of a promise. We've seen that and over those 20 years, that this covenant that God made to Abraham, Isaac's father, that's functioned really as an umbrella over everything that's happened to Jacob. There's always been the, the covenant because Jacob was the one for this generation, third generation, to inherit the, the covenant promises. We re need to remember that Abraham's covenant was unconditional. God, God promised that he would bless Abraham and Abraham's descendants. As I said, Jacob is that third descendant. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's the third one then to receive the covenant promises. And, and through the record, as we've traced, time and again, we, we've watched as Jacob has brought problems upon himself, rather than, than waiting in faith for the promises to come about, for God to bless him as God has promised to do, Jacob tried to influence the circumstances, most often through deception. That, that was his go-to option. When, when push came shove, tried to deceive and manipulate. 
Well, we've watched as God's been faithful to his promises. Jacob has received the blessings that God has promised. Yet these sinful actions repeatedly have brought long-lasting consequences that that hindered the, the full enjoyment that Jacob could have had with the promises because of the consequences of his own sinful actions. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I felt as we were looking through these 20 years, the chapters that cover them, felt like we were stuck in a loop. We were shown over and over that, that, that God did not need any help to accomplish his purposes, that we were shown that deceptive actions were always wrong, and yet God, we were shown time again, remained faithful to his word despite human failure. Jake would fail, God would be faithful, and we saw that time and again. Uh, of course, the, these key messages are what the nation of Israel needed to learn. Let, let's not forget that Moses is writing this as they're traveling to the promised land. They're about to be the, the new recipients. A few generations later, 400 years have passed from Jacob to, to Moses' generation. But they're coming to the, the promised land to receive the blessings that are part of the covenantal promises. They need to remember these lessons that are being looped over and over. You don't need to help God. God will do what he has said. God is faithful. In fact, God is so faithful, even your failures won't disrupt what God has promised to do. He will still accomplish his purpose, but you will lose out on some of the enjoyment that you could have had. There'll be consequences that come. Israel needed that message over and over. I'm convinced that that we do as well. We struggle in the same areas. Waiting on God is never one of our strong suits. We want to help the situation over and over. Well, Jacob, as I said, he's finally arrived back in the land of Canaan, the promised land. He, he's arrived back under the Abrahamic covenant. It's in full force over him. He was 20 years outside the land, and during that time, he does return now as a worshiper of God. He, he's become a, a God worshiper. And in the final verses of, of chapter 33, we were told they settled into the, the land near the city of Shechem. He bought a piece of land there and he built an altar. It, it seems like that would be the, the, the culmination. That should be the high point. He's back where he needs to be in the land. He's worshiping God. Be a good time to end the story, wouldn't it? But we don't. We go into chapter 34 instead. We, we pick up the record of Jacob's travel right at that place where he settled there at Shechem. He's still there. We have no idea how much time has passed because there's no statement in our text that tells us, but most likely a few years have gone by. Just if you think it through and you do the math, Jacob's oldest son, when he returns to the land, would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 14. Uh, you, you figure he, he worked seven years for his first wife, add another nine months at least past that. He's near eight years. 20 years total outside the land, that puts the son to at least 12 years old. Well, maybe there took a little more time in the journey or a little longer. Maybe could squeeze in 14. So somewhere in that early range. Well, and based on the action that we'll see in this chapter, it seems like his oldest children are probably all at least in their early 20s, maybe even a little older. You know, there, there's no indication of their age, but their actions are not those of a, a 12 or 14-year-old. I will warn us as, as we start, before we even look at this chapter, this is a challenging chapter. There are no commendable actions in this chapter. There are no commendable people in this chapter. It's an ugly chapter. 
Like I said, I, we wish we could have stopped with chapter 33, but we don't. Overall, the events recorded in, in this chapter are quite detestable. When, when I taught through this section of Genesis in a Sunday school class several years ago, I skipped this chapter. It, it seemed easiest to just skip past it. I admit it was tempting to do that again. And yet God has clearly included this chapter in his word. That, that means that this chapter is profitable for us to study. The nation of Israel needed the lesson that is in this chapter, and so do we. Now I'm going to break our chapter into four sections, and we'll begin with the first three verses that, that record the, the rape of Dinah. Look at verse 1 of chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. Notice how the chapter begins. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah. Do you know the Bible only introduces women two times in the entire Bible by their mother's name? This is one of those times. The, the other one's chapter 36 of Genesis, verse 39, if you're wondering. But only twice in all scriptures a, a woman introduced by her mother's name. It's an extremely unusual way to call attention to Dinah. Why? Why does Moses remind us that this is the daughter Leah bore to Jacob? Are we to remember right from the beginning that Leah is the unfavored wife, the, the unloved one? We already knew that from Genesis 30, of course. That's where Dinah's birth was announced. There, there was very little um, fanfare with her announcement. There was no real comment just that she was born, but we know that Leah was the unloved daughter. Are we to assume, or unloved wife rather, so are we to assume that, that Dinah was unloved because Leah was? I don't know. One of the challenges with biblical narrative, this, this story type of passage we're, we're looking at, is that many of the important lessons are, are simply hinted at by, by what is and is not recorded. We, we have to pay attention to the small details that, that are given in, in order to extract what is it that Moses is trying to tell us. Why is this story here? As I said, several years have passed. I'm sure things happened during those years. Why did Moses pick this story out of all those years? What Moses records here as he introduces this story is that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, went out to visit the daughters of the land. Literally, the Hebrew says she went out to see the daughters of the land. The, the meaning is that, that she wanted to hang out with the other girls in the city. She, she wanted to interact with, with them. Rather than, than staying in their family settlement with all of her brothers, she wanted to go see some of the, the girls in town. Moses doesn't say any more than that Dinah went to see the other girls. But this is enough to suggest a couple of problems. As we know from the, the next verse, some very bad things happened as a result of, of Dinah spending time in the town with the girls. She, she caught the eye of Shechem. Shechem was the prince of the city-state. At this time, the city would have been a state, so he's the son of the city founder, the one who ruled all that land around there. He, he'd be the, the prince of that area. He's the one the city was named after. The city's called Shechem because the guy who founded it named after his son. Well, having caught Shechem's eyes, Dinah is raped. 
The, the form of the Hebrew in verse 2 draws attention to the force that's used as he commits this heinous crime. Then in verse 3, he decides he loves her. It's more likely a physical lust than actual love, but at any rate, Shechem is now obsessed with Dinah. In fact, it's hard to recognize our English translations, but, but Moses uses the word cleave in verse 3. We have it translated, at least in New American Standard, as deeply attracted. But it's the, the Hebrew word cleave. This gives us a reference to Genesis chapter 2.24. We're told a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. What Moses is telling us with this little link here is that what Shechem did to Dinah was a clear inversion and a violation of God's moral law. God's law is that man and woman were to be married and then cleave to one another intimately, become one. Well, he put the oneness first before the, the cleaving. He inverted God's moral law. That's a problem. As I said, this verse suggests a couple problems, though. Verse 1 does. Um, one is Dinah's interest in the daughter of the land. Her interest is unwise. Now, I want to be careful. I, I want to make sure you hear, and, and I know I'm being recorded. I want to make sure it's clear. I'm not implying that Dinah is guilty of her rape. She was the victim of rape, not the cause. Yet, that does not change the fact that she was unwise in the first place. And she helped create the situation that led to the, the rape. Jacob's family was to remain separate from the people of Cana. Isaac's wife, remember, could not come from Canaan. Abraham sent his servant north to get someone from his family, Rebekah, to be Isaac's wife because Abraham, as part of the covenant, was to be separated from the family members. Jacob's wife could not come from Canaan. It was a problem that Esau's wives came from Canaan. Dinah sh certainly should have steered clear of the boys of the land, and that would have been much easier if she had steered clear of the girls as well. The girls, the daughters of Shechem, they had nothing to offer Dinah other than their pagan influences. Going out to see them was unwise. We need to understand the same is true for us. We are not culpable, let me repeat that, we are not culpable for sins committed against us by others. They are responsible for their sins. Yet we should never be surprised when we spend time near sin-filled world where we're, and sin-filled people where sin is the natural course of life. When we spend time there, we should never be surprised when some of the sinful actions strike us. Wisdom requires that we avoid putting ourselves into places where sinful actions are most likely to occur. Dinah failed to exercise wisdom. But there's a second problem suggested here as well. The second problem in my mind is even more severe. That problem is that Jacob failed to exercise fatherly oversight. Moses, I think, is hinting to a problem with Jacob in this unusual introduction even of Dinah by being Leah's daughter. Jacob is responsible for managing his family. He is directly responsible for his daughter. She lived in his home. Jacob doesn't say a word here. He is silent as Dinah goes where she ought not to go. Jacob, if you think over the last... 20 years that we've seen things, he has accumulated a long list of family failings. 
Well, here he appears to add another one to his list by being silent instead of guiding his daughter. Now, this is not the main lesson here, but let me use this opportunity to admonish all the parents here tonight. Your job is to parent. Be active in your children's lives. You're responsible for guiding your children. Don't allow them to engage in unwise actions while you remain silent. Too often, parents are permissive and, and allow their children to do that which they want to do. On the surface, the things may appear harmless in and of themselves. You know, going out to hang out with these girls in the city doesn't seem like it would be a, a dangerous thing for Dinah to do. But Jacob should think below the surface. He should think deeper than, than just the surface. And so must we as parents. When, when things consistently put the, your children near the sinful world that surrounds us, you are failing in your parental duty as a parent. You are to keep them from engaging with the sinful world. Your goal is not to remain your child's closest friend or, or to ensure that they have constant happiness in their lives. Your goal is to be a godly parent, to teach them to like things that are after God, not after the world. Your children need your guidance to, to keep them from unwise and, and spiritually dangerous situations. They need guidance, not silence. In the first section, we, we do have the rape of Dinah. Surprisingly, her rape is not the center of Moses' concern for the rest of the chapter. Really, the rape just provides the, the backdrop that everything happens against. Moses focuses much more on deceitful actions than he does the rape itself. In, in verses 4 through 24, we have a whole string of what I'm calling the deceitful negotiations. This is a large section these deceitful negotiations. And rather than, than read it all at once, I, I think we'll get more out of it if we read as we work our way through it so that we can see the details that, that Moses is focusing on in his back-and-forth exchanges. In our mind, our first instinct is, Dinah's been raped. That should be the focus. There's a great wrong done. But let's read where Moses goes with things. Verse 4. So Shechem... Remember, that's the son, the one who, who raped Dana. He spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, Get me this young woman, or this young girl, for a wife. The only obvious implication that, that we can see is that Shechem is completely unabashed by his actions. He demonstrates no shame whatsoever as he enlists his father's help in acquiring Dinah as a wife. Verse 5 gives us no dialogue at all in this section. It's one of the few verses where we don't have speaking. But it's a significant verse nonetheless. Now Jacob heard that he, that would be Shechem, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. I want to let that set in. Uh, Father just learns that his daughter has been raped. And he says nothing. The fact that Jacob hears about it suggests that this is not a carefully guarded secret in town. We don't have the record that Dinah told him. No, he heard. In other words, it's become public knowledge. Jacob hears what's happened, but he's silent because his sons are in the field. 
Once again, it seems as if Jacob's concern for his own well-being exerts itself above his concern for promoting righteousness. Without his sons, he's outnumbered in the town, so he doesn't say anything about the dreadful event. Where is the righteous indignation that, that should come naturally to any father in this kind of situation? It's missing. In fact, we do not hear a protest from Jacob's lips even when Hamar comes out and talks to Jacob about their children. Look at verse 6. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. I guess Shechem had no reason to, to feel shame when he went to tell his father about his desire for, for Dinah. He had no reason to feel abashed because his father does exactly what Shechem asks. Shechem says, get me this girl, and Hamar runs out to Jacob and tries to get the girl. Hamar's actions are sad. Jacob's silence is unbelievable. Here comes a man, the father of the son who raped your daughter, asking now to give you her as a wife, and he says nothing. In fact, Jacob never says anything to Hamar. In verse 7, his sons come home, and they take over negotiations with Hamar. Look at verse 7. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard of it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not be done. But Hamar spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Now before I continue reading, I, I want to note the way Moses words the reasons that Jacob's sons were angry. Jacob, or Moses tells us they're angry because he, that would be Shechem, had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. The King James Version translates the, the word that, muse, that, that Moses uses even more precisely. They're angry because he had wrought folly in Israel. Shechem's crime is described as folly. Now, to us, folly doesn't seem like a strong word, but folly is a word that portrays what Shechem did as a godless act, the exact opposite of that which pleases God, something that pollutes the very family. So the brothers were rightfully incensed when they hear what happened. But you catch there in that verse that the brothers are referred to as Israel. Uh, he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Moses is reminding the nation, the nation of his day, 400 years later, that this kind of a blatant violation of God's moral law cannot be tolerated. This kind of violation of God's moral law cannot be ignored. As God's chosen nation, this kind of a sin must be addressed. I also want to notice as Hamar is asking for Dinah as a wife for Shechem, he offers Jacob's family possession of the land if they will only intermarry with the Canaanites. What, what began as this attack against Dinah has suddenly turned into a threat to the covenant itself. Because now you have a Canaanite offering to Israel the land. The land was meant to go to Jacob's family. 
It was meant to go them because God had promised it would go to them. But who was to give the land to the family? God. Hamar was not the one who owned the land. God was. God had said, this will be your land. I will give it to you. Intermarrying with Hamar and the other Canaanites was a problem. It was a violation of the covenant. It was ignoring what God had already said he would do. It was certainly not a solution. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God promised to curse those who cursed Abraham's family. Well, Shechem's actions certainly fall into the category of cursing Abraham's family. You cannot treat a, a member of the family any more despicable than raping. For Jacob's family to align themselves with the people of the city through marriage would create all sorts of covenantal problems. In verse 11, Shechem speaks up. But shame again remains absent from anything he says. Look at his words in verse 11. Shechem also said to her father, that's to Jacob and her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give accordingly, according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. No direct comment is made in this point, but we learn in verse 31 that the sons of Jacob consider Shechem's willingness to pay essentially treating their, their sister as a prostitute. He, he doesn't acknowledge what he's done is wrong at all, he just says, I want to find favor in your sight. Well, why would he ever think he could find favor in their sight? I want to find favor in sight, and I'll pay for that favor. In other words, he wants to hire their daughters the way they interpret it, or their sister. Verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamar with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah after Dinah, their sister. They said said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us and that every male of you must be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Moses tips us off before the, the sons say their first word that their goal is to deceive Hamar and Shechem. So, so even though they, they promise to intermarry with the men of the city, we know they have no intent of following through on that promise. They're answering with deceit. In fact, Moses uses the, the very same word for deceit there in verse 13 as was used in Genesis 37, verse, or Genesis 27, rather, verse 35, back there when when Jacob deceived Isaac. Again, there's this linkage. Jacob came before Isaac and he stole the blessing from Esau by deceit. Now, like father, like sons, they respond to a situation with deceit. Now, we know from everything that has happened since chapter 27, as I mentioned at the outset, deceit is a problem. We've seen that loop over and over again. Deceit creates nothing but problems. But have you thought about the nature of this deceit in these verses? We don't know exactly what the sons are planning at this point, but we know that whatever they're planning, 
They're using circumcision in this scheme. Think about that. God gave Abraham circumcision as the sign of what? The covenant. The circumcision was intended to convey a special relationship that God had with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. An outsider could gain acceptance into the nation of Israel by, by adopting the sign. They could be circumcised, but the sign was supposed to indicate that this person had adopted Israel's God. When they accepted Israel's God and joined the nation, then they could be circumcised and become part of Israel. Now that same sign that, that points to this special relationship with God is being used in a most ungodly fashion. It's being twisted into a, a weapon within this web of deception that these sons are, are using. They're, they're weaving and using circumcision as, as part of their, their tool in this deceptive web. The negotiations between Hamar and Shechem with Jacob's sons are complete at this point, but that does not complete all the negotiations in this section. Verse 18. Now their words seemed reasonable to Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of this, their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to, to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us must be circumcised if they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. As I read that, did you catch how Hamar shifted his words when he and Shechem returned to the city? In verse 10, he, he, he told Jacob's sons that, that they could acquire property in the land, that, that he would give them property in the land. Now he goes to the city and he tells the men of the city that we can acquire all the wealth of Jacob's family. That was likely Hamar's goal all along. Still, Moses is pointing out a more significant danger here than, than just Jacob losing his wealth. Moses is pointing out a covenant danger. Look at verse 22. Hamar says that they will all become one people. The implication is that Jacob's family will join the Canaanite. They will be absorbed into the, the city of Shechem. This is a threat to the covenant. As I said earlier, non-Israelites could become Israelites by placing their faith in Yahweh and worshiping him and then accepting, adopting the sign of the covenant. But, but that's not what is happening here. This is the other way around. This is the very danger that the fledgling nation will face when they enter the promised land after their time in the wilderness. It's the danger of amalgamation joining the pagan majority rather than remaining the separated minority. Nothing presents a greater covenant risk for the people of Israel than joining the nations surrounding them. Coming back here to Hamar and Shechem, 
it, it is surprising, at least me anyway, it's surprising that, that they are actually able to convince every male ma man in the city to undergo circumcision. That, that tells me either Hamar and Shechem were very well-respected leaders in the city or they're well-feared leaders in the city. I don't know which it is, but, but all the men of the city are circumcised, but their circumcision does not represent a turning to faith in the God of Israel. These men are looking for financial gain, not spiritual gain. That's the bulk of our chapter. The bulk of the chapter is filled with the deception the deceitful negotiations. Verses 25 through 29, they quickly record then the devastation of Shechem. We, we know from verse 13 already that, that the brothers were working on a plan of deceit. Now we learn what it was if, if they put the plan in, into motion. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain, that's the, the men in the city of Shechem, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. There really is no way to put a positive spin on, on these bloody verses. Simeon and Levi, who we are reminded here, are full brothers of Dinah. Two of her full brothers, they come into the city while the men are in pain, and they kill every man there. Then apparently all the other brothers come and help loot the city. They take the flocks and the herds, the donkeys, the wealth, the children, and wives. According to verse 27, they, they held all the men in the city responsible for what happened to Dinah, since none of the, the men called out Shechem for his actions. No one rose up against his heinous behavior. It is surprising to learn that Dinah was in Shechem's house. Apparently they had her go with him when he went back to the city as part of their, their deception. But they rescue her from there and they, they take her back to their family's tents. We, we can only assume that the wives and children from the city were sold off at some point as slaves, but we have no further knowledge of them. Moses doesn't tell us. He, instead, he focuses on the deceitful actions, not on the results. Surely Moses is including the story here for a number of reasons, but one reason may be to demonstrate why Judah ends up as the son of honor. You may not remember how all the family fits together, but Judah is Jacob's fourth-born son. He, before Judah comes Reuben, that was Jacob's first-born son. That's also Leah's first son. Jacob is, is uh, Leah has the first son for Jacob, it's Reuben. Then come Simeon and Levi. They're also Leah's sons. They're the second, third son born to Jacob. And then comes Judah. He's son number four, Leah's fourth son. And that's the first set of sons that Leah bears. Remember, Leah bears these four sons, and then she stops bearing children. And that's when they, they bring in the, the maids and give them as wives. And, and then Leah starts having other children. All of this happens before Rachel bears Joseph. So Judah is son number four in, in the string of things. 
The, the next chapter will show us why Reuben is disqualified from receiving the blessing of the firstborn of Jacob. Well, maybe this chapter demonstrates why Simeon and Levi are passed over because Judah becomes the, the son of authority. Judah is the one who, who will receive the promise and we know the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He is, that is the important tribe. Well, why not Reuben? Why not Simeon? Why not Levi? Well, here's the why not Simeon and Levi. Let's finish out the chapter by observing that the final commentary on, on the events. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? For the first time in the entire chapter, Jacob speaks. He speaks and he rebukes his sons. And in that rebuke, what we see is he's fearful that, that their actions will made the family odious to the inhabitants of the land. He, he doesn't address the, the wrong that was done to Dinah at all. He, he doesn't worry that, that his sons acted deceitfully. Although, when he does hand out his final blessings in Genesis 49, he, he does, at that time when Jacob is on his deathbed handing out the final blessings, he, he remembers Simeon's and Levi's cruelty, so, so he brings out their violence, but he doesn't confront their deceptive behavior. He doesn't address... Dinah's situation. His only concern is the fear that now the people that remain in the land will see him and his family as a threat, and the people in the land will band together against them, and they will annihilate them. Sadly, it seems like Jacob still doesn't get it. God has promised that he will inherit the land. God cannot remain faithful to that promise and allow Jacob and his family to be destroyed by the people of the land. Fear continues to bring out Jacob's denseness, really, rather than his faith. Rather than growing in faith, we just keep seeing this is a guy that just is dense. He doesn't get it. God will protect him. Now, I do think that Jacob's words may serve as a means for Moses represent a final judgment on the actions of the sons. There, there's no way that God was pleased by their deception and violence, so the rebuke of Moses may be Moses' way to, to hint towards God's view of things because the sons, too, failed to trust God to curse those who had cursed them. Instead, they, they took the matter into their own hands and used sinful behavior to accomplish their purpose. Now they justify their rashness, by, as in their final response. They, they feel justified in their sham and violence because they had been wronged. Their sister had been sinned against, and in their eyes, that gives them the right to do what they're doing. As I said at the outset, there's not a single person in this chapter who displays exemplary behavior. There is no one here who is righteous. There's no one who we should see as righteousness in their behavior and, and follow them. Nevertheless, we, we still need to consider what can we learn from this. This chapter has been included here under divine inspiration. 
As I said, there had to be undoubtedly many events that happened during the years that Jacob and his sons lived in Canaan that could have been recorded. Plus, there's all kinds of details about this event that could have been recorded but weren't. Whatever happens to Dinah? We don't know. What happened to all the wives and children that were taken? We don't know. Did the surrounding inhabitants ever actually threaten Jacob's and his family? We don't know. It's clear that Moses was quite selective in the details they gave us. So what does Moses want us to learn? I believe the lesson for us is really the same lesson as that which the Israelites who were heading into the promised land needed to learn from this event. And that's the lesson. We must not allow a hatred of evil to provoke an unrighteous response. Let me read that again. We must not allow a hatred of evil to provoke an unrighteous response. We live in an evil world. That was true in Jacob's time. That was true in Moses' time. That is true in our time. We live in an evil world. Ever since the fall, this world is filled with evil. It's filled with evil men who seek to satisfy their, the evil intents of their heart, and they will do wicked things. At, at times, the evil all around us will tempt us to join it. That's one challenge that we face. But other times, much like in our chapter, the evil around us will hurt us. The wickedness will strike us. It will hit close to home. And we will find ourselves, or, or those we love and, and care about, harmed by the evil actions of others. A great risk that, that we face at that moment is the desire to strike back. We will want to hurt those who hurt us. And at that moment, we will face a great temptation a great temptation to employ unrighteous actions ourselves. We will want to fight fire with fire, fight evil with evil. Yet evil is always evil. Evil is always sinful. Even if we are using it for what seems like a justifiable end, it is sinful. Maybe I'm speaking a bit too much in the abstract, so, so let me bring it home just a, a little bit with some examples. Abortion. Abortion is evil. It should cause anger within us when we, we think about the unborn being slaughtered. Yet how many times do we see clips of anti-abortion advocates, people who we agree are holding to the right position, we see these people yelling with hate-filled words at abortion providers. I'm not talking about words of opposition. We ought to have opposition. I'm talking about words of hate often accompanied by faces that are contorted in anger. That is an unrighteous response to evil. Another example, homosexual marriage. Uh, again, this is something the Bible clearly defines as evil. Yet, have you heard Christians mocking and ridiculing people who are caught up in this sinful lifestyle? That is an unrighteous response to evil. Angry people. We are surrounded by angry people. We've all been cut off and flipped off while driving, I'm sure. Have we responded with angry actions of some kind ourselves? Some sort of an unrighteous response to evil? 
I could go on, go on and on, but I'm sure by now we, we get the idea. There is evil all around us, evil that prompts us to respond in kind with unrighteous actions. Now, I am not saying, again, not saying, here's why I'm not saying, that, that we should avoid responding to the evil around us. Passivity, like Jacob displayed in this chapter, is not the answer. It is a failure to be passive when confronted with evil. Evil should prompt a response from righteous people. We should hate evil. We should never become passive or comfortable with evil. At the same time, we must ensure that how we respond reflects the righteous character of our Savior, rather than mimicking the evil we are responding to. Our Savior perfectly demonstrates how righteousness should respond to evil in the world. He, he walked in the same evil world as we do, but never allowing it to provoke an, provoke an unrighteous response from himself. And now our Savior calls us to do likewise. He promises to empower us with his divine power along the way so that we can respond righteously to evil. We have no excuse. We have a perfect model who promised the divine enablement. We must not allow a hatred of evil to provoke an unrighteous response. We must hate evil and we must not allow a hatred of evil to provoke an unrighteous response. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard chapter to look at here this evening. My prayer, Father, is that you would help us to learn what we need to learn from it. Because, Father, as difficult as it is to see the actions of Jacob and, and his sons, it's just as difficult to look at our own lives and see how often our actions fall far too close to emulating their actions. Father, help us to respond to the evil around us in a righteous manner, not employing unrighteous means. Give us the strength, give us the wisdom, give us the Christ-likeness that we need. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.